Welcome everyone to the Healing Place podcast. Today I am super excited to have with me Vic Comfer and Rodney Wittenberg, who are the producers of a film, an award-winning film, Caregivers. And um, they each had roles that I'll allow, allow them to talk about on the movie as well as, as being co-producers. So welcome, gentlemen. Thank you for being here today. Thank you. Thank you very much for doing it. Absolutely. So talk to me about this, this project of yours and um, how it came to be and, and what your roles were in it. Well, this film and the concept of this film has sort of been in my craw, so to speak, for many, many years. Uh, in addition to being a filmmaker, my earlier and lengthier career uh, has been as a social worker. I still consider myself a social worker because I do workshops and such connected with the screening. But I worked in child welfare for a little over 20 years, also several years uh, part-time with hospice as a medical social worker and also as a clinical social worker with older adults and it was in doing that kind of work with the clients who had experienced trauma that i began to also realize that it was having an impact upon me uh, some of the most dramatic uh, and, and difficult of those situations and, and service was in child welfare. Say, for example, the death of a child or the near death of a child. These are incredibly uh, painful experiences for everyone, certainly primarily for the families and the victim herself or himself. But the people working with these cases who are trying to do their very best to help uh, can be very powerfully affected. Um, and so this was my first exposure to secondary trauma. And back in those days, and we're talking about, uh, you know, a good 20-plus uh, years ago, uh, there wasn't even the, the uh, terminology for it, uh, certainly not widely known. Um, and I was calling it originally professional grief because it's so much like grief, the kind of loss and sadness a disappointment one feels sometimes with uh, the caregiving, professional caregiving that one is doing in such circumstances. So uh, that's where I began to, and when I began to do workshops on this subject, I created workshops. And then I realized that there's really virtually nothing out there in terms of films that uh, really tell the stories of the caregivers themselves, where they report and and talk about their experiences. So um, the film was about five years in the making. It's been out several years now um, with a very positive reception from so many different audiences. But that's kind of the origin of the idea. And then I presented this to Rodney, who had helped me with an earlier film, and uh, he can speak for himself, but his enthusiasm uh, buoyed me up as well. So awesome. <laughs> maybe you want to speak to that, Rodney. Uh, yeah, so I, um, I've been um, scoring film, writing the music for film since 98, and um, been making movies since, uh, I'm trying to think, the first film I edited was 2000. 
2001 or 2000. Um, it was a really schlocky horror comedy. But um, <laughs> uh, And I started my company, Melody Vision, back in the early 90s. And it, we're it's a full fledged production company uh, that uh, that you can do everything from start to finish in any kind of media production, uh, music, audio, and uh, film. That's wonderful. And so Vic, so, uh, Vic came to me, like you said, about eight years ago and uh, with this idea. And at the time, you know, after doing a little bit of research, I saw that there was really nothing out there that nobody was, was talking about it. And I said, well, I think we could make this movie and... We'll see if people care by the time we're done. <laughs> right. And uh, and the one thing I said to Victor, I wanted to make it, you know, like Vic had made some um, shorts, and I said, well, if we're going to do it, let's do it right. Let's make a real documentary. And uh, so, so we set out to do that, and it was great. We spent the first year just putting together an advisory t- committee, and we spent the first year and a half just figuring out what we wanted the film to be. There was a, um, a lot of different directions we started going in the first. At first, we thought maybe we'd just be social workers, and then we thought we, we started adding things to it and then taking things away, and finally, we, just, we ended up with the concept that we would go out and interview uh, people who had professions who would be affected by secondary trauma. You know, so we, that's why we, so that's why we took a look at first fire, firefighters and first responders and, um, and as well as teachers and anybody who was on the front line of giving care. And that's kind of where the title comes from. And I think, you know, we, we knew that we were kind of, um, adding to the definition of a caregiver, uh, cause sometimes the police and firefighters don't think of themselves that way, but they are, they're out there taking care of us. And so, um, and then the movie really, the subject matter really spoke to me because um, I had also run a nonprofit and it was an anti-violence, anti-drug program, and I worked with my staff in some of the toughest neighborhoods in Philly. And um, I can tell you, many days I would come home feeling some of the symptoms of uh, secondary trauma. Plus, I have a lot of uh, friends and people I'm very connected to that are social workers or therapists. So I also saw it from that side. So as soon as Vic brought up the subject, I was like, oh, I get it. Let's do it. Right. <laughs> well, I, I worked in an agency uh, with children, um, mm-hmm. a, a mental health agency, and then worked in the school settings. And wow, how many times I would come home and, and just cry. And, um, mm-hmm. and and then having connections, you know, obviously with therapists, um, mm-hmm. that I worked with in the agency and being able to talk not about patients but just about the job itself and the impact it was having was very therapeutic. So I cried quite a bit through watching this film, but in a very healing kind of way, um, which mm-hmm. is one of the things we talked about before we started recording was the fact, you know, when I first started playing it, I said, oh, my gosh, I'm being triggered here, um, paused it, and then came back to it the next day. Um, to finish it up and, and was able to make it through. But but very extremely powerful, beautiful, beautiful film. Uh, so I commend you both for just such a... Uh, it, it certainly speaks the truth. There's so many things in it that I want to go back and watch it again. Um, very powerful. So thank you. Thank you, yes. Uh, I did want to add to that that um, when we do screenings of the film and we're able to be present 
for some of those. We always give a heads up to the audience that uh, the stories that the professional caregivers are giving, some of them are, are very, very powerful and emotional, and it's not at all unusual that a person, uh, a viewer, would be triggered. And we encourage the audience uh, to think ahead of time who would be someone that you trust with whom you could talk, someone with whom you could debrief uh, if you do feel triggered. Uh, that's, that's a normal phenomenon because many of us as professional caregivers uh, carry around cases which uh, the memory and feelings about cases that maybe we worked with 15 or 20 years ago, but we just kind of stuffed it because we, we had to move on to the next case for whatever reason. And then sometimes our own uh, our own stuff, our own trauma history can get triggered. That's not at all unusual either. Um, one of the, the great myths that I think a lot of professional caregivers have is that if they're truly professional, they're going to be objective and they're not going to be triggered. And if they are, that something's wrong with them. And part of our message and goal in the film was to uh, normalize these responses uh, so that professionals providing care realize that they, uh, you know, when they really uh, are empathic and open themselves uh, to clients, which is what clients want and need, they may indeed be triggered, they may be touched, and that uh, therefore they want to have in place as much as possible a supportive team or supportive people in their lives that will help them uh, cope with the, the challenges of that kind of work. Right. Absolutely. Well, one of the I, one of the nurses I remember in the film talking about the um, when they the notes that they would get from parents saying uh, talking about the babies and um, saying you know just mm-hmm. that knowing that the nurses connected with those families and were crying with them uh, again very powerful and beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Well, you know, uh, working with children. Um, is some of the most stimulating and, and challenging, uh, especially in the areas of child abuse and neglect, some of the horrible things that um, the therapists and child welfare workers and anyone in that system will witness. Uh, some of those things are just uh, horrific. And um, some 37% or more, I've seen higher figures in child welfare, some 37% or more will will at some point in their career experience secondary trauma. It's also called vicarious trauma uh, or compassion fatigue. These are terms that are not absolutely identical, but they're pretty closely related uh, with some distinctions. But the, this phenomenon, um, it, it occurs in all of those different professions that Rodney was just mentioning, which is why we included them. But uh, my first exposure, as I said, was through child welfare, and that's one of the most uh, most challenging of the fields. Sure. Well, compassion fatigue, that was one of the notes I had walked, wrote, written down for myself, was the section that talked about compassion satisfaction um, and how that, mm-hmm. that balances that out um, when you can, can have that um, be an important part of your job and focus. So, yeah, very important. Yeah, compassion satisfaction uh, is really the the very encouraging 
uh, side that we also feature in the film because the work can be extremely meaningful and rewarding. Um, and, and when one has a sufficient level of that satisfaction in the work and realizes that one is indeed uh, providing meaningful help to children, families, or other clients, whoever that might be, it does counterbalance. It, it helps one deal um, in some remarkable way with the, the sadness or the darker side of some of these professions. Uh, sometimes, however, we don't, we don't know the positive effects in clients' lives because those clients move on in their lives to other places or to other services or what have you. But whenever we do get that positive feedback, we want to celebrate it and remember it and, uh, and, and let it, um, you know, really uh, be something that we will hold on to oh, because absolutely. It's, it's really helpful in the darker times. Yeah, I have, it's funny, I have a, um, a rose bush, bush that a family had given me, um, and this was one of those children that you just talked about a few minutes ago, one of those children that had such a powerful impact. I will remember this child for the rest of my life, just a very powerful impact on me personally. And um, the family had given me this rose bush, and so I planted it in my yard, and every year these beautiful pink flowers bloom and this year it struggled and I haven't seen a bloom on it yet and it's driving me crazy and I'm like oh my gosh is he okay is everything okay like I'm like is it a sign from God what is going on mm -hmm. so yeah it does <laughs> it, it really does have you know when you do have that satisfaction or at least that almost like a closure thing with the family um very powerful yes agreed mm -hmm. So what? Tell it's me. a good example. Let me just say, sure. with regard to what you just mentioned, that it's a, what you said is a really great example of how these these individuals that we work with, in a way, become part of our lives, uh, and we remember them. Uh, we remember uh, the, the sadness, but we also remember the rewards. And that rose bush is just a, a great symbol of. Uh, a memorial or a memory of, of that family. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So tell me about your roles um, before I forget, because I'll, I probably will. Um, what other roles did you play in the development of this film? Well, you want me to go first, sir? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> okay. So, uh, I, I, as, as we said, I'm the co-producer of the film. And for movies, I I would just say a little bit about that because sometimes people are, are, are confused or not clear what does the producer do. Um, and the producers are the people that actually own the film because they are the ones who uh, figure out how to pay for it. Right. <laughs> uh, that's the big role of the, of the producer. But it's also holding the creative vision, you know, because um, in, in, in a sense the producers are also responsible for hiring everyone else that works on the film. And that is the main person they bring in is the director. And in this case, uh, we being the producers uh, knew that Vic was the director, so we didn't have to worry. Okay. <laughs> we, we, we knew we were getting someone, someone good. And then, um, and then, you know, being a, a filmmaker and, and composer, you know, uh, it was 
we talked about me doing the score for the film, and I promised myself as the producer that if I didn't think that I, the composer, was good enough, was the right fit, that I would say that. But as soon as I started working on it, it just made, you know, it was I was hitting the right tones and, you know, coming up with music that really spoke to what the... Uh, the meaning of the scenes were, and uh, and then and then you know also as producer I just chipped in on chipped in on a lot of different aspects of the film. So there's some editing and you know some other stuff, and then the sound mix, which I've done for other films. So well, as a, viewer, a lot of different roles, but um, to me it's all storytelling. So. Yes. And well, Rodney, Rodney's been uh, Rodney's been a really great person to work with. He's very multi-talented and. Uh, also, I think one of the great things you contributed, Rodney, mm -hmm. was helping us with the structure of the film. Mm -hmm. And the structure of the film moves from really those kind of dark narratives about that that illustrate the sadness of the, of the work to a transitional place where we begin to see what some of the, the successful interventions are that help help the professional cope. Uh, really into an upward movement of compassion, satisfaction, and joy and meaning. So the film ends on that positive note. So that kind of structure um, was something we worked on together, but a lot of that, I think, came from uh, Rodney's insights. Um, but in terms of, uh, of other roles, um, I guess what I brought to the film was, first of all, the concept and the idea. And I did a lot of reading ahead of time, um, there's a tremendous amount of academic literature about this topic, but as I said earlier, there really aren't films that speak to it uh, in terms of the stories of the, of the caregivers. So then going out and finding those caregivers, uh, largely it was through word of mouth. Someone would know someone who would know someone, and we began to look for the kind of people who not only had powerful stories, but who could articulate and their stories on camera. Sometimes people have great stories, but they're not the right ones to be uh, on film with it. So, so doing that, of course, I conducted the interviews, um, really tried to help put the various resources together. Um, we, we were very fortunate in uh, having an additional uh, couple of, of, of a regular editor and an assistant editor and that assistant editor is also um, very well trained in animation and we we thought that uh, bringing animation to the film would, um, would would take us away from just having talking heads which can get to be a bit tiresome but it also lightened the tone a little bit of the film and uh, then we looked for um, some ways toward the uh, toward the ending of the film, I'd say in the last uh, quarter or so, to bring in a little humor to lighten things up a little bit as well. So balancing all those tonal things was something that um, was part of uh, both of our roles, really. Uh, so, you know, being a very small crew, <laughs> we all jumped in there and took uh, on multiple tasks. Uh, and Rodney also mentioned that we, we've had a, a very fine advisory board of mm -hmm. experts in this field. And uh, they, they, too, contributed, uh, posted the spirit, and uh, gave us great feedback on the film. They've, they've just been invaluable. And also were a big part in connecting us with uh, some of the people that we interviewed in the film. You know, we have right. our meetings once a month and say, well, we'd really like to get this person 
Uh, oh, wait, I know them. Uh, I'm gonna, yes, one of our uh, members would know someone who knew someone, and that would be how we get in the door. And, That's awesome. Uh, and then also a big thanks to Willow Carey, who um, also connected us. She's uh, at WHYY here in Philadelphia and um, really connected us with some agencies that also brought us some people that we interviewed uh, through uh, listserv that she knew about. And, um, it, you know, takes a village. To yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Even with a small team, it takes a lot of people to help bring it together. And we had some great people helping us. And, and it's, I really I also, did. Uh, go ahead. I really did like read through the credits, and I, I just because I was, well, one, I just the, the number of people that you had and and their credentials, but I, I was just blown away to see you know who was contributing and, and what their roles were and how it helped, and it it, it was fascinating to me to learn um, all that went on and all the people that were involved in it. So yeah, very cool. I'm glad Rodney uh, just mentioned WHYY. Our local PBS uh, station here has been incredibly helpful to us, uh, several of the individuals in that, both in terms of outreach and uh, feedback about the film and, and also helping connect us to the wider American public television um, system that uh, has picked up the film and is uh, broadcasting it around the country. So that was part of the uh, local village that connected us then to uh, the wider national audience. So, that's that's one of the uh, questions I was going to ask. Yeah, like where, so where can people view it and, and where is it being shown and, and how's it getting out there? Well, there's a number of different ways you can see uh, portraits of professional caregivers. One is it is airing uh, all over the country on PBS at, uh, in various markets. We've had uh, since it premiered back in December. It's we've had uh, a lot of screenings uh, at, at, at San Francisco and um, uh, St. Louis and New York and uh, just all over the country. It's been playing and it uh, will be for our under from our understanding for the next couple of years. Uh, it's available to all the stations who are on the um, uh, the APT wire or what or service or however it's listed. So that's one way. The other way is uh, on demand. If you go to our website, there's a VOD page and there's a there's basically one for consumers which uh, which you can see the film for 24 hours for 20 bucks or if it's an institution, you can uh, you know purchase an actual license for a year and the pricing for all that is there on the site as well as our education distributor um which is Alexander Press. You can, uh, I think they actually might have just changed their name because they were sold. But They're now called uh, ProQuest. Yes, ProQuest. And you can uh, purchase our film there. And if you'd like to set up a screening in a theater, uh, you can reach out to our theatrical distributor, uh, which I just blanked on their name. Tug. Thank Tug. you, Tug, <laughs> which is also on our website. And you can set up a screening at a movie theater, and uh, and Tug will help you through all that. And uh, lastly, if you would like us to come and do a little Q&A and also uh, maybe a workshop or something, that is also available, and all that is available on the website at caregiversfilm.com. All right, caregiversfilm.com. So we, we have... Uh, 
we have been very uh, gratified with the interest in so many uh, cities and have been doing I've been doing workshops in a lot of places that's work where I sort of bring together my film interest and my social work um, so I've, I've done workshops uh, in recent months in Providence Rhode Island Northern California San Francisco Kansas City um, Milwaukee we've had screenings in uh, Washington DC with NASW Nashville, Chicago, just a lot of different places. Uh, it kind of seems like people are awakening to the reality of this uh, phenomenon of uh, compassion fatigue and and also realizing that there are solutions, there are ways to assist these caregivers, that it's not hopeless. There are um, some really wonderful interventions, and that's a lot of what the workshops are about. Okay, fantastic. Does that fall under the trauma-informed care umbrella? Is um, Yes. Okay, but, but from the provider's standpoint in lieu of the recip- you know, the trauma survivor, the trauma warrior. Yes, the trauma-informed umbrella, I would say that's been our most responsive um, network mm-hmm. of, of agencies, and we thought we presented the film at some of their national conferences and and we hear from a lot of those people and also the acesconnection.com i think it's where we met you yes. through that terry yes. that, that uh, that's been a tremendous resource of connecting people in the trauma-informed care communities both service and educational communities yes it's been wonderful i met some wonderful people there one of the things i wanted to go back to for just a minute uh rodney you had said um <laughs> You had mentioned storytelling, and one of the most powerful mm-hmm. quotes in that in in your film, um, and I did not. I'm not giving credit to the to the woman that said it. Um, I should have written her name down, but what she said was, "Storytelling needs to be a part of the world of people who care for people," and mm-hmm. I, that just to me was was so brilliant and so beautiful because it's so very true. Um, and what you're mm-hmm. doing is providing that opportunity for that storytelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Uh, let me uh, tell you who that person is. Uh, Diane Wagenhoff, W-H-E-E-N-H-A-L-S, uh, with Lakeside Educational Network. Mm-hmm. And they provide trauma-informed care uh, as well as training uh, all over the greater Philadelphia area. So they've been really boosters of the film, and um, and that's a direct quote of hers. Yes, that you will find in healthy organizations the opportunities for colleagues to be able to tell their story and to know that they will be trusted and that their story will be appreciated. Yes, and in in connection is such a big part of the healing process. So, yeah, um, you know, we all have stories, and we all. Uh, need to it's not it's it's partially tell them but it's also to know that they're heard and 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 to feel and have that connection with others and community and that's one of the biggest ways to you know uh, bring about healing and sometimes you you can even break it down to just an energetic level is if you're dealing with the energy that someone else is going through and it, and it, and it comes to you, 
the best one of the best ways to work through it is to pass that energy on and being able to not only pass it on in a traumatic way so that the other person now is traumatized right but 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 having bearing witness being able to be heard and in some cases you know in a therapeutic setting having that story even challenged and uh, um and uh you know Busted up and creating new stories. Yeah, you know, because, well, there's, because one of the things about us humans is not all that we we tell stories which are really important, but sometimes we give them meaning, which can also be not so good. <laughs> right. <laughs> so uh, it's good to be able to have a place to process process your stories and 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 um, to work through them with people who also know how to do that and 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 work better than your colleagues sometimes and other times you know we've, we've in, in going around and talking to different groups we found that it's um it's also good to uh to see someone to have a professional to talk to um some of the things that have blown me away uh just a few experiences in going around and screening the film one or a group of uh firefighter cadets were particularly interesting because you know after watching the film and listening to two firefighters, you know, senior firefighters talk about just the horrific impact of not dealing with trauma on their lives, you know, and they were very open and honest about what happened to them, and still, uh, one of the cadets stood up and said, so, what's the point of talking about our problems? And uh, it's like, well, we, we, we need to, we, we, maybe we need to make ten films. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, the the one scene where the firefighters were all sitting in a semicircle, and um, yeah, again, well, there's just so much in that film. Again, I could there I could talk about so much of it, but very powerful. Um, the the one gentleman started talking about you know the suicide of a of a um, of a fellow firefighter, and then just the impact that it had on him, and you could just just see the connection that was happening. And like you said, that energy mm-hmm. thing, that energy transformation, uh, it honors it, and it's very, it's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. We, we had um, three goals when we set out to make the film. Uh, our first goal was to sort of at least begin or try to break down the stigma within the various professions of asking for help. I mean, particularly, as uh, Charles Figley says in the film, the paramilitary organizations like police and firefighters and first responders can be the worst at actually getting help because everyone thinks it's a sign of weakness. And we just wanted to really highlight and celebrate the people who are willing to go down that path and, 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 um, and say, hey, I, I need some help. So that was one of our goals. The second goal was to make the general public aware because uh, particularly at the time we started making the film, it was only academics and um, people in the field were talking about secondary trauma, but it wasn't wasn't so much in the public. And it still gets confused. That, that was the, also the second half of that second part is uh, really trying to make the distinction between the different types of uh, trauma that, pe- that professionals can suffer from, you know, like PTSD is very different than secondary trauma, although they may have the same symptoms or they may look the same in some ways. But so many times uh, I'll be watching a report about some tragic incident that happened and 
the news reporter will go, and the first responders will be experiencing PTSD. Well, actually, they'll, they'll get secondary trauma. I mean, they may have some PTSD from something else, but usually it's, uh, you know, they're experiencing the trauma because they're helping someone, not because they're going through it. And and then lastly, we were hoping our, our goal was to, um, you know, foster some legislation that would support these uh, people who are doing this wonderful heroic work and um, supporting them. And that's actually begun here in Philadelphia with our city council. And um, I should say Vic City Council because I'm actually out in the suburbs, but <laughs> with the city council in Philadelphia. Um, and uh, they they did a wonderful proclamation for uh, you know all the city workers who would be affected by uh, this and created the day of the city of the uh, social worker and first responder or caregiver and first responder. And uh, we have about um, sessions set up where all these professionals will be able to come in and and gripe. No, actually say what the, <laughs> what they need, say what their what they think their needs are in order to take on this issue of. Uh, vicarious trauma or secondary trauma. So um, so we're very excited that a lot of the goals that we set out to achieve uh, are happening, even if they're happening locally and regionally, uh, and we hope soon nationally. Sure. That's wonderful. Well, congratulations. Yeah, let, me, let me just add a little bit to what Rodney's saying there, which is that um, we have a couple of city council people here in Philadelphia who've become quite excited about the film. And they're calling for public hearings, which we anticipate uh, in the early fall, where the professional caregivers will be invited to come and share their stories and also talk about what their needs are. And what's also been very encouraging is that at many levels of the city, so we on this Caregivers and First Responders Day, which was... Uh, enacted at City Council on February 15th, we had high-level commissioners, we had administrators, we had supervisors, we had direct service people, and we had the unions, a number of the unions that were represented. Uh, so this is a bipartisan and also a, um, a situation that affects all levels of service. We also had a lot of private providers because many of the of uh, the city services are provided through contracted agencies, so we had those folks there. So uh, we're we're encouraged with these are still very early steps, and we don't know exactly where they'll lead, but we're hopeful that they'll lead to some legislation uh, that will make resources accessible in all of the departments of the city uh, where the caregiver would be able to without any hesitation, uh, be able to go for debriefing and for support for the kind of work they're doing. That's our goal. Wonderful. I love it. One of the questions, and we're doing good. We're at 35 minutes. Woohoo! Um, <laughs> was, so, and, and I think you've answered, both of you, a little bit about this, and the film does as well, but any myths or facts that you want to clarify for listeners? Was there anything that you came across as you were, as you were doing this film um, that either was a surprise to you or that you, you just think is very important for people to know about? Mm -hmm. uh, can I go first? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so the, I think the biggest surprise to me was as we screened the film, 
to hear about and uh, meet more and more professions that face uh, secondary trauma that we didn't think about. Um, one of the ones that comes to mind is veterinarians with some of the laws that are passed now. They have to put healthy dogs down. If a you know, person brings a dog and says, I want to put it down, the veterinarian can't refuse. And that's pretty traumatic, particularly for someone who loves animals. And just some of the cruelty that they see on a regular basis uh, I never would have thought of them as facing secondary trauma. And then there's lawyers and clergy, and the list just keeps going on and on. And so that was one of the big surprises to me, you know, like that there were so many professions that, um, that newspaper reporters, it just, it just goes on and on, that, um, you know, their job is to either report on or experience or help support people through some pretty horrific times in their lives and it does take an effect on them sure. and then i wonder if teachers um, fall do teachers fall into that yep yeah teachers we have some teachers in the film so yeah uh, teachers yeah. particularly you know obviously not teachers who are teaching in a uh, private school although um you know um i was somewhere uh, like somewhere recently and um talking to someone, and again, it was another one of those surprises. They were telling me about some, their profession, and I recognized that they were actually experienced secondary trauma, and I can't remember. It was just surprising because it was someone, that, you know, working in a more affluent neighborhood doing something, and they were encountering trauma. And, it, you know, just surprising how, many, how, much, how much there is. Right. Um, and then the second thing I would say is just, this is the look in some people's eyes when they have a, a, a an, um, an awakening. Uh, one of my favorite moments of a, at a screening was when someone came up and said uh, that their mom was a nurse and they never understood why their mom was so moody when they came home from work and you know would go off by themselves and maybe have a drink and not say anything. And he, he this person said that he was going to go home and give his mom a really Aww. big hug and tell her. He understood. Yeah. So that uh, was a. Uh, those are those are just two of so many things that we kind of <laughs> saw and learned as we were traveling around screening the film. Right. Mm-hmm. How about you, Vic? Anything that you've come across? Well, I think along the same lines, uh, the discovery of how pervasive and common this problem is. Um, I didn't realize that firefighters and police officers um, have very high rates of of suicide, of domestic abuse, of drug and alcohol abuse, um, ways of of not coping well with uh, their professions. Um, And to me it was enlightening because I think in our society there's been such a polarization in, in recent years uh, that the conversation that has been missing, especially with regard to the police, is the degree to which uh, many of them are suffering emotionally. Uh, some, besides the secondary trauma that's quite strong, about 18% of them have PTSD, and they come, they come back often as veterans, uh, with that PTSD, or they may get it on their police job. So it's widened the conversation, and, and 
certainly widened my uh, feelings of compassion uh, for these individuals. That's in no way to excuse any abusive behavior or racist behavior or anything like that. Um, accountability is really important in, in that profession and every other profession. But on the other hand, uh, what has been missing in the conversation is the acknowledgement of the um, suffering that also may lead to dysfunction, or it, it can also lead to poor services. Because if you've got um, if you've got a professional caregiver that is emotionally uh, in a very dark place, uh, they're not going to be able to function at their best with, with the client. So, you know, it really behooves us to take care of our professionals in ways that will enhance their abilities with their services. So, so that kind of broader conversation has been uh, worthwhile and, and at times surprising. Uh, also to discover that um, medical doctors are suffering quite a bit. Um, the Mayo Clinic uh, indicates in their research that the percentage of doctors who are experiencing burnout, which is not exactly the same as the secondary trauma, but sometimes it overlaps, that's up to 54% of doctors uh, are experiencing this. And there are national conferences going on now about doctor wellness, and we've been invited to some of those. We have a, a member of our advisory board who is in BDA, um, a medical doctor and, and teaches at a medical school, and he's been doing presentations using the film and taking it around to grand rounds at uh, several of the hospitals here. So I think for me the surprising thing is to see how, how significant this situation is and how hungry, really, a lot of these professional groups are to address it at this point. Right. Well, then that that's a perfect way to, to bring in this last question for you both then is for the listening audience, what is what is your recommendation or what is the professional recommendation if someone is listening um, and they are experiencing burnout or they're experiencing what they've now discovered might be compassion fatigue or secondary trauma, what do they do? Mm-hmm. Well, let me, let me jump into that. I want to make a distinction. Burnout is, in fact, it's most often associated with a sense of, of meaningless and malaise in a organizational setting, often where uh, paperwork and organizational demands are excessive and so forth. And, and burnout is very real, but we want to distinguish that also from um, secondary trauma, which has more to do with the impact of taking care of someone else's trauma and then being triggered and, um, or, or just uh, feeling overwhelmed by it. So these are related phenomena. Um, what, what I um, am really putting a lot of my energy toward is, is trying to help organizations understand their responsibility. Uh, Self-care for the individual is is very, very important and work-life balance and all those good things. Uh, so, so in my workshops, we certainly talk about that, but it really is the organization's responsibility to create structures of collegial care 
uh, not only good supervision, but but uh, systems that enable the workers to to in structured ways debrief each other, be able to talk with each other about what's going on. Uh, so that's where I'm putting a lot of my attention. And what I would advise the individual worker to do, uh, who may be suffering from secondary trauma, is is to find a trusted supervisor, find a trusted colleague or two that one can really talk to and and feel, as Rodney was saying so well before, that they're being heard, they're being listened to, they're being respected, and and that goes a long way toward the healing process. Uh, and then if one has the energy or is able to bring some leadership to it, to really try very hard to get one's organization begin to assume responsibility. That takes a, a group effort. It's not just something one individual can do, but there are, I think, an increasing number of organizations that are starting to do that, and there are even some legislative efforts. Uh, for example, in um, Colorado, uh, the, the uh, House of Representatives and their Congress, whatever you call the state, the state uh, house, uh, did pass legislation that is promoting the creation of these structures uh, within the child welfare system. So they're really out there ahead of any other state. So um, it's you know it's a combination then of responses. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you, Rodney. Anything you want to add to that? Um. Yeah, I think they covered pretty much the different aspects that you can take on if you are, you know, feeling that you're struggling with self-trauma. It's, it's self-care. Uh, there's a, a couple of um, uh, things we look at in the, at the end of the, in, you know, in the third act of the film that uh, from having a personal safety plan that's part of the, uh, um, the uh, oh, wow, what is Sandra Bloom's uh program called again? The Sanctuary. The sanctuary. sanctuary. Right. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so we look at that um, and we, Sandra actually points out some things that you can do like listening to music or meditating or, or um, going for a walk, which some of the stuff Vic just mentioned. And so it's a combination of the personal care and taking the time to take care of yourself. Um, when I ran my nonprofit, one of the things that I was a big stickler stickler about was um, making sure that my staff was paid well. And it was very difficult when I was going for grants, but I really fought to get them paid well because I felt that if they were not being paid well, if they were distracted or thinking about bills, how are they going to give good service to the kids? Right. And it became very frustrating because it was always a numbers game. You know, they would always be, well, if we pay you this much, you have to hit, you have to do 200 kids. I'm like, no, we're going to do 60. Right, right. <laughs> but you still got to pay us that much because that's what it costs to really give them the quality right. uh, time and making sure that the staff I have is trained well and prepared to do the kind of work that we were doing. So um, I say the same thing for, you know, all the other professions that face trauma, if we don't take care of them and they don't take care of themselves, how are they going to be able to help us? Right. Well, I want to hug you for that because coming out of an agency, right, <laughs> I remember being a part of that numbers game, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Having to hit the quota, hit our numbers. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. All right, gentlemen. Well, if there's any, is there anything else that you you want to share or talk about or end with before we close out? Watch the oh, film. Watch, watch, watch the, the film. film. And yeah. I want to end with uh, I want to end with uh, my gratitude for what you. I think uh, conversation very uh, meaningful and uh, the indication is that uh, the way the three of us have talked together uh, sometimes. Uh, new things have been said and new facets in the conversation that uh, haven't even come up before. So uh, it's been a very creative time, and I appreciate what you're doing. Oh, thank you. I, I appreciate very much both of you taking the time to be here with me today and um, share this, again, amazing film, um, very powerful, beautiful. I have to look and see if uh, our local Cincinnati um, PBS is, is showing it. If not, I'll have to send out an email and tell them they need mm-hmm. to put it on the air. Mm-hmm. Well, they have they have actually uh, shown it once. I was just looking at some of the cities today, but um, they have access, and, and a number of cities are showing it multiple times at okay. different times of the day and so forth. So you, you could contact them. Uh, I would want your listeners also to our website, which is very easy to remember. It's caregiversfilm.com, www.caregiversfilm.com, and there's lots of information and ways that they can access the film. Okay, wonderful. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you again. I'm going to go ahead and uh, close off on this, and then I'm going to, if you guys could stay on the line for just one second. Thanks, everybody, for listening in, and until next time, be sure to be gentle with yourselves. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. One of the things I wanted to add before I closed out for today was you can now listen in to the podcast directly on my website, which I'm super excited about, at www.terrywellbrock.com, so T-E-R-I, one R, Wellbrock, W-E-L-L, B-R-O-C-K dot com. So yeah, you can go listen to past episodes and still catch us on iTunes and Blueberry. So, all right. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.